Last week, I, I brought the first of two lessons uh, from Colossians chapter 3. If you'd like to, uh, I hope you do take a Bible because I'm going to refer to the verses a lot. Uh, and I'll find the page number here, but Colossians is about halfway through the New Testament, and we're on page 1144 in these uh, brown Bibles that you have there on the tables. Uh, I'm indebted uh, heavily to uh, Brian Chapel for some of the information I have in here that uh, years ago uh, I heard him uh, talk about. Uh, Colossians chapter 3. <clears throat> Now, when I was a high school senior, uh, every child's dream was fulfilled. Now, don't take this wrong. I'm talking now from a child's perspective. And that is my high school burned down. (laughs) Okay, but here was what was strange. I lived in the day, I don't know, they still have fire drills today in schools? I don't don't know. So, you know, from kindergarten on, we had fire drills. And mine burned down at 4.30 in the afternoon, and we weren't there. So all those fire drills, 12 years of them, out the drain. We didn't even need them, but... No, there was an electrical fire in the high school. It was a large public high school I attended. About 1,200 students in grades 10 to 12. The main building uh, caught fire and burned. It was a huge fire, and uh, the whole city kind of turned out that night to to watch uh, this uh, biggest fire I've ever seen. And I had just started walking with Christ, and Colossians chapter 3, I'd been introduced to it, and it had become a very important passage to me, and I had taken part of it and written it on a sheet of paper. Really, I'd taken verses 12 through 14, and I had uh, written those on a sheet of paper, and I'd taped those to the back of my locker. The school burned, and we had lockers where we kept all of our books, and a couple of days after the, the fire was all out and so forth, they allowed us to go back into the school building, at least on the first floor, and remove our belongings that were in the, the lockers. So I, I opened up the, lock, uh, the locker, and uh, there, of course, everything was either wet or had soot all in it. And I still remember seeing taped to the back of that locker, I can see right now, uh, those verses from Colossians chapter 3. So I, I memorized, that's one of the cha- few chapters out of the Bible I memorized then as a high school senior, and through the years... I probably spent more time thinking about, meditating on, reading over uh, the verses from Colossians chapter 3, especially the first, uh, the first two-thirds of it. Uh, and yet it's, it's kind of like the, the ocean. You, you, you can swim in it when it's six inches deep, or you can go way out and swim in it, and you'll never reach the bottom. That's how this chapter is to me, and so I, I love studying it. Uh, to me, it's a perfect blend of doctrinal, what we believe, combined with how what we believe should affect how we act. Last week, if you were here, we looked at the uh, first four verses. <clears throat> Let me just tell you uh, briefly what we saw there. It says that, well, I'll read it. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these things in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. 
Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. As far as I'll read today. First, he said, we've been raised with Christ. When you put your faith in Christ as your Savior, as your Redeemer, you come into union with him. And positionally, you are buried with him. Just like he was buried, you are raised with him through his resurrection. And that's through faith by the power of God. We're raised with Christ. We also looked at this last week. Where is Christ now? He's at the right hand of God. The right hand was a place of honor. It was a place of privilege, a place of affection. If you've died with Christ and then therefore you're raised with him and you are seated with him now at that place. Those privileges and honors that are bestowed on Jesus are on you as well. They are ours too. And it says that he is seated. I told you how in the old temple the priest stood and offered sacrifices continually. If you were here last week, I spent a great deal of time talking about that. But when Christ came and he fulfilled the work of sacrifices, Hebrews 10 says, But when this priest, speaking of Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down because there was no longer any need to stand and offer sacrifices. Verse 3 says, We have died. We say, well, what, in what sense have, has a believer died? Well, in the sense that the penalty for sin has been paid. And we will appear with him in glory. That's in verse 4. And then one more word of review. What should our response be? Well, it tells us in verse 1, we should set our minds and hearts on things above. Let it creep into your brain. Set your mind on it. Let it grip you. Let it grab you. God says, think about these things. You and I should think daily about the fact that hell awaited us in eternity apart from God. But God in his mercy rescued me. He resurrected me. He raised me. He has eternally loved me all because of Jesus Christ. Now, if your trust is in that, and once you know that, you're motivated to do certain things. And that's what begins in verse 5 when it says, put to death, therefore... We could read it, therefore, put to death. Therefore, meaning what's come before. You know, based on the fact that you've been raised with Christ, seated with him, so forth. Therefore, as a result of that, now do these things. Some of you have heard Randy neighbors speak. Randy has uh, been to our church. He's not preached here on a Sunday morning. Randy is a pastor of New City in uh, Chattanooga. Uh, It's a multiracial church in, in Chattanooga started probably over 30 years ago by Randy and his wife. Uh, Randy served for a long time uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the reserves uh, with the military. And Randy said that it's very common for young people to come up to him and say, uh, I'm thinking about enlisting and going into the military. I want to ask your opinion. What do you think? And so he gives them advice. And Randy said that his his first question is, uh, well, let me ask, would you be willing to die for your country? And he said, typically, the person without a lot of hesitation says, yeah, I really believe I would. He says, okay, well, that's fine. Now let me ask you another question. And he said, would you be willing to kill for your country? 
And he said, that usually evokes much more of a pause. Now, that's the thought here. When it says put to death, it means to kill. The old word was mortify. You know, we get mortician, things like that. To mortify. That doesn't mean much to us today. I think the phrase put to death or kill. We are to kill certain things. What are we to kill? Well, not, this is not talking about killing other people. Uh, it's talking about killing whatever keeps you from full devotion to Christ based on the fact that you are resurrected, seated with him in the heavenly places. Would you be willing to kill that aspect of you that is wrong, that keeps you from full devotion to Christ? Paul is calling for you to eliminate everything in your life that is contrary to Christ's likeness. Well, let's look at some of the specifics. He begins with, uh, with several categories of sexual immorality, sexual sin. First, he says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. He says sexual immorality, impurity, lust. Let me tell you something about these words here. Immorality is the word in the Bible from which we get the word pornographic. It just means every kind of immoral sexual relation. In other words, all sexual relationships outside of, of marriage. Chastity was the one new, completely new virtue which Christianity brought into the world. And so for Paul to say this, for the Apostle Paul to write this, was as radical as you can imagine in the pagan culture of his day. As it is today, and only becomes more so, right? I mean, it, today you have to try to build a case as to why uh, following God's laws about sex make any sense. Because to the world around us, they make no sense. The second element of sensuality, he says, to kill is impurity. This is a broader term. It talks not only about actions, but also our, our imagination, our, our speech, uh, things in our hearts and in our minds, just the thought life. Uh, so as with all sin... Uh, especially sexual sin, it begins in the mind. It begins there, and if we're to deal with it in our own lives, we have to start with the mind. Uh, there was an old story of a Puritan preacher, and a man came to him, and he was trying to express about his thought life, and he said I ha he had these cobwebs in his mind. He had these sinful temptations, and, and the preacher said to him, well, then you need to kill the spider. You've got to get to the root. You've got to get to, to your mind. Evil thoughts produce evil, sinful behavior, and pure thoughts produce righteous behavior. That's why Paul says whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good, good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. So God calls us to kill sinful thoughts. <clears throat> now, I, I'm not pessimistic uh, toward the younger generation. I have five children. As of Monday, seven grandchildren, and uh, I, I don't, I especially don't doubt the power of the covenant Christian home and the influence it has, though the fruit may not come until much later. Um, but I work off an assumption having had daughters and, and dating and that kind of thing. And, you, and this is just my opinion. I can't turn to a passage and verse. But in this day and age, with high-speed internet, and I think any parent that gives their child a computer and, and high-speed internet in their bedroom, they're, they're fools. I mean, that's a, I don't know. Oh, that's the most ignorant, naive thing I, I can imagine. But 
uh, I almost had to assume that unless a young man is committed to Christ, I mean committed to Christ, not just a, somebody a professing Christian, but somebody, then I would assume this guy's life is filled with pornography. And you almost can assume that about, about females too today. Now, that may sound very pessimistic. No, I think, because I think it's so accessible and so powerful that why would a person not, unless they had a major reason, why would they not indulge unless they had a major reason not to? And the only reason today not to is because you're committed to Christ. That's my opinion. You may, that's just. So I, I uh, how do we deal with this? Well, he, he says, put to death. Lust refers to the emotion which leads to sexual excess. So he says, kill off evil desires, sensual desires. Um, But then it's an interesting transition. Then he moves to greed or covetousness. Basically, greed is the evil root sin from which these other sins spring from. It's greed that leads to sexual sin. That sounds strange, doesn't it? How What does greed and sexual sin have to do with each other? Well... um, Sexual sin is totally self-absorbed, and it puts your desire and your wants above anything else, especially above obedience to God. Well, why does he call this idolatry also? Well, whatever you put your trust in, that's what you worship. And when you sin, it's, it's you choosing to do what you desire rather than what God desires. And so in that sense, that sin takes the place of God and becomes an idol. So we all have idols in our lives. And they may not be uh, blatant, but maybe my idol is I'm just going to protect myself by being polite and nice and keeping everybody at arm's length. But my motivation is not to encourage that person, it's to protect me. And so my self-protection becomes a, major, a main idol in my life. When we get into motivation, idolatry can play a large part of it. We may not even realize it. And so when you want something God does not want you to have, it means you love it more than you love God, and that's why he calls it idolatry. Am I making sense? Y'all aren't even on dessert yet, and, I, and I'm <laughs> talking. Um, well, how do you kill it? How do you kill it? How do we do this? So, okay, Chip, it's one thing to describe the situation or the problem. How, how do I deal with this? Uh, I want to make one other observation, and, and uh, well, two observations. Uh, and y'all would know this from your ages and stages of life. I picked up a book uh, some time ago called "Secrets of Your uh, Family Tree." It's written by a Christian counselor, and uh, I tend to look at books for my own benefit, and also as a pastor, as a resource that I might could this be passed on or help somebody else. Well, it had something in the book I've never seen. It had a survey that you could take as to whether you were a candidate for marital unfaithfulness. <laughs> you ever seen a survey like that? Well, I hadn't either, and so I immediately turned. I was standing in a bookstore, and I turned and, table, and I said, well, let me see what this is. Now, here's what I was expecting to find, and it was a questionnaire, and you would answer these questions, and you would total up your score, and they would say, I'd say, you know, yeah, you are, you're a prime candidate to, to commit adultery, basically is what I was saying, or you're not. Well, I thought, honestly, when I picked it, I, you know what I thought I was going to read? Do you, do you look at pornography? Do you, I thought I was going to see all these things. You know what the questions were? 
Have you suffered a significant loss in the past year? Are you dealing with pain in your life that no one else knows about? It dealt with grief. It dealt with pain. It had nothing to do with sexual immorality. That was the beginning for me to start to learn and matching that with what Dr. Larry Crabb says, that when you are hurting, whether it's loneliness, whether it's grief, whether it's disappointment, the quickest way for pain relief is through sexual immorality. Immediate, almost. Even to look at pictures. Now you think about that. Now you put that combination with a very hurting society and all sorts of things enter in. So how do we get to the root of this? I, and so um, I'm not saying that if, if, if you just lost a, a parent or been through a hard time that you're getting ready to commit adultery. <laughs> but I don't think that typically what drives us is not often what we think we're going to end up. It's a desire for relief. It's a desire to, to, to deal with the pain. And it's choosing the wrong way to do it. Well, how do we kill it? John Owen was uh, a prolific writer, and especially on a subject, I mean, all his works, my roommate, one of my roommates in college had the works of John Owens, these big, thick volumes on two, I don't know, how, John, how many are there total, you know? 16. All right, volume six was one of the most famous, because the whole volume about that thick of small print was on the mortification of sin. This, this uh, verse, or this, this concept. How do you put sin to death? Now, you don't have to read all those. I'm going to tell you an interesting thing that he said. He said there are two times when Christians can think they will no longer have to fight. Okay? There, he said there are two times when we think, okay, the fight's over, or I can let my guard down. He says the first is when we have indulged in sin. The person gives in to the temptation, and because they have indulged... At that moment then, right afterwards, it seems unattractive. And they think, well, I'm not tempted anymore. And the believer thinks, well, now I have victory because it's no longer tempting me. And Owen says the victory will grow old, the temptation will return. The second time, he says, um, that, that we think we'll no longer have to fight is when God has rescued us from some crisis. We cried out to him for help, and he rescued us. And during the crisis, perhaps we made a vow to God, a vow to God of some great thing, and then that, that if God will deliver me, I'll do this. I'll, if you'll just deliver, Lord, then I won't do something anymore. And God rescues. And Owen said the crisis will grow old and the sin will renew. So uh, we have to keep our guard up. I think that's why he, when he speaks here, put to death, therefore, these things. It's a continual, it's a continual thing. Um, <laughs> I heard of a Bible college professor who was 60, he was in his 60s, he was past retirement age, and, and the students loved him and respected him, and they would, they'd also get his Christian counsel in the classroom. And one time someone said, Professor, when is sexual lust no longer a temptation? And he said, I don't know, but it's not 67. <laughs> <laughs> so we have to be vigilant, it's an ongoing process. Okay, let me, let me quickly give you some of the reasons that he gives here for putting sin to death. Verse 6 is a pretty strong reason. Because of these things, the wrath of God will come. God's wrath will come because of such things. And he puts it in such a way that it's certain. The wrath of God certainly will come. The reference is to the day of judgment. 
Calvin said that that we should mention this so that we may be deterred from sinning. The reality of the coming wrath of God is to deter us from sinning. Now, when you think of all the global problems in the world, to talk about things like this seems silly, doesn't it? You know, what are you Christians? Look at all the problems in the world, and y'all are worried about personal morality. Get a grip. Well, let me read you something from uh, John Piper's book, Future Grace. And this was written about 15 years ago. I know a number of you read it. But I've not read anything like this anywhere else. And he tells about speaking at a high school about this very subject and the reaction of the students. Like, this really isn't this important, is it? Here's what he wrote. He said, a few years ago I spoke to a high school student body on how to fight lust. One of my points was called, ponder the eternal danger of lust. I quoted the words of Jesus that it's better to go to hell with one eye than, I mean, to heaven with one eye than to hell with two. And I said to the students that their eternal destiny was at stake in what they did with their eyes and with the thoughts of their imagination. I tried to connect, I tried to counteract the prevalent notion that personal sexual morality, including the life of the mind, is of minor moral significance. Idealistic students and adults often think that they do with their bodies and their minds. What they do on a personal level is no big deal. If it's sin at all, it's sin with a little s. He said, shouldn't we just get on with the big issues like international peace, global environmental strategies, racial reconciliation, social justice, health care initiatives, and elimination of violence? Sleeping around is simply no big deal if you're on the picket line for justice. And flipping through Playboy is utterly insignificant if you are on your way to peace talks in Geneva. I stress that Jesus sees these things very differently. These global issues are important, but the reason they are is because they all have to do with people, not just statistics, but real individual people. And the most important thing about people is that unlike animals and trees, they live forever in heaven glorifying God or in hell defying God. People are not important because they breathe. They are important because they have the capacity to honor God with their hearts and minds and bodies long after they stop breathing forever. So he goes on, he said, after my message in the high school auditorium, one of the students came up to me and said, are you saying that a person can lose his salvation? In other words, if Jesus used the threat of hell to warn about the seriousness of lust, does that mean that a Christian can perish? Piper says that's exactly the same response I got a few years ago when I confronted a man about the adultery he was living in. I tried to understand his situation, and I pled with him to return to his wife. And then he said, you know, Jesus says that if you don't fight this sin with the kind of... Then I said, if you don't fight this sin with the kind of seriousness that is willing to gouge out your own eye, then you will go to hell and suffer there forever. As a professing Christian, he looked at me in utter disbelief as though he'd never heard anything like this. And he said, you mean you think a person can lose his salvation? And Piper concludes, so I've learned again and again from firsthand experience that there are many professing Christians who have a view of salvation that disconnects it from real life, that nullifies the threats of the Bible, and puts the sinning person who claims to be a Christian beyond the reach of biblical warnings. I believe this view of the Christian life is comforting thousands who are on the broad way that leads to destruction. And Jesus said, if you don't fight lust, you won't go to heaven. Not that saints always succeed. The issue is that we resolve to fight, not that we succeed flawlessly. 
Another reason to put it to death, it says, is sin is part of the believer's past. You also, you used, it says in verse 7, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Paul is telling these believers they've become new creatures. The message is clear. If we've died and we've been buried and resurrected and ascended with Christ, since we've been made full of his fullness, then there are certain things we should put to death because they bring wrath, not blessing. They don't bring happiness. And then he mentions some other sins. Verse 8. Rid yourselves of such things as anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language from your lips. Just briefly. Anger, speaking here, I I studied each of these words. It's a deep, smoldering resentment. Rage, sudden outburst of anger. It's like a smoldering fire just waiting for somebody to blow on it and and it flames up again. Malice is a vicious bent on hurting other people. You, you may not know this, and maybe not in your church, but churches today have a lot of angry people in them. <laughs> uh, and that anger is there before they come to church, but sometimes church brings it out. <laughs> uh, and I think shallow theology has contributed to that because it's told us we're privileged, it's told us that we have an entitlement, and God's obligated to bless us and make us healthy, wealthy, and wise, and when he doesn't, we feel we've been shafted. And so he, God owes me an explanation, and I want to hear it. Until he gives it, I'm not fooling with him. I'm not paying him any attention. Anger, wrath, and malice result in slander and filthy language. Now, interesting, filthy language here is not talking about profanity. It's talking about language intended to hurt. I'm acquainted with a guy who was a pastor in the Pacific Northwest. used to be in the Atlanta area. And he had been asked to, do, to come back and do a wedding of a young couple that he, uh, he had known real closely. He had really been their pastor. And they were going to get married in a church, I think, where she had grown up that was of a very different theological persuasion than this pastor. But all the paperwork had been done. Everything had been worked through, all this in advance. They paid his plane ticket to fly him there. He arrived. The night of the, re- the uh, rehearsal, the woman who was in charge at the church, he could tell, boy, she was just really irritated. And irritated of him, of who he was, of the, what he stood for, and took it out on that young bride. And tried to tell her, no, y'all can't, y'all can't be married here. Well, he had to go to bat for the bride saying, look, they've spent all this money, they, they did all the paperwork, they got all this uh, approved by your church. So, He said the next day when he was standing in front with another pastor waiting for the bride to come down the aisle, he could see right, you know, well, y'all don't know. I've stood up there many times and I can see the bride and the groom, bride and the dad. Boy, I really know it, don't I? The bride and the dad standing there. Right before they started down the aisle, he saw the woman who represented the church lean over to the bride and say something in her ear and her face just dropped. He came all the way down. He did the wedding ceremony. Then at the reception, he went up to her and said, what, what did she say to you? He said, she said, I wish you had never contacted our church. See, she waited till right when she knew she could stick the knife in the deepest. That, now that's an extreme example. That's filthy speech. That's what he's talking about. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, we shouldn't blaspheme. And, I mean, there are other reasons not to use 
vulgar language. But that's not what filthy speech in this context. It means using your speech and you intend to hurt somebody with it. We're to kill that too. We're to kill that like, like we would kill adultery, you know, to, to seek to put that to death. Well, I'm out of time. Um, the way we fight is by faith. There is power to the fight in itself as we fight by faith. Lord, I'm your creature today. I wake up and I say, I belong to you. You've rescued me from hell. You've given me a life to serve you as I trust in Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit. Now enable me by that Spirit to put these things to death that come out of my own heart and to seek to follow you. Satan will tell you you have no power. Uh, He'll say, Chip, how many thousands of times have you prayed that? God isn't going to help you and you're just a failure yourself. But that's when we have to remember, greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world. God has given you his power to overcome sin. There's ability even in the fight. And tomorrow does not have to be like yesterday. So we as believers should always be optimistic. Because until Christ comes again or we go to be with him, he's at work in our lives. So the final weapon, the final power for living for him is love itself. And that's where that passage ended up. That we love him. Why does sin appeal to you and me? Because we love it. We have to just face it. I love it. Uh, And in the moment that you and I choose to sin, the truth is we love that sin uh, more than we love the Savior. So the way you take away the power of sin is to take away its life source, which is our love for it. And the way we do that is we are filled up with the love for Christ. It's the power, as one theologian in the past said, the power of an explosive or an expulsive passion, that I love Christ more. Why would I do this and hurt him? Why would I do this and hurt someone I love? That will always, that will win out over my love for the other thing. Allow him to become your chief affection. Let's pray together. Father, um, we are experts at sin. It is so natural, and we are so good at deceiving ourselves and deceiving others. And we don't dare approach a passage like this thinking somehow we can earn your grace and earn your favor or make you love us more because we make choices with our behavior. But we pray that you might enable us to live in the power of the fact that we're resurrected through faith in Christ, we're co-seated with him, we're recipients of the honor and affection that you bestow on him at your right hand. Pray you might help us if some of us here that may have enslaving habits that are not honoring to you and uh, maybe in a sense are almost like an addiction for us. If, Father, we pray even today there might be renewed passion and love for you that would uh, be more powerful than those things and help us to live with the power of the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.